0: I'm a friend of Plato. I'm a friend of Aristotle. But truth is my greater friend. These are words from a personal notebook written by Sir Isaac Newton. He wrote it sometime in 1663, during his third year at Trinity College at Cambridge. Newton was about 20 years old at the time, and with these words, he was proclaiming a bold and even a revolutionary decision, to search beyond the boundaries of classical teachings. He wanted to understand the biggest questions about the world and the universe. Under those words about truth being his greater friend, he wrote up an index, air, earth, matter, time and eternity, sleep, soul, and God. There's evidence that Newton had been contemplating some of these vast questions on some level for years before, But around this time, in 1663, his focus on these things intensified considerably. Proverbs 25 says it is the honor of kings to search out the things that God has concealed. And in Newton's search to understand various baffling aspects of the creation, he really did prove to be regal. And his search and his work has made a momentous difference in the world. All of us, really, are the beneficiaries of his pursuit of truth. And so, largely out of gratitude for all that he accomplished, we'll shine the spotlight for this episode of The Sun Also Rises on Sir Isaac Newton. I'm Jeremiah Jacques. This is KPCG-FM and we really appreciate you tuning in today. In Newton's quest to push beyond classical teachings, he first began poring over the work of several thinkers who had been on the scene just a generation or two before him. He studied the Polish astronomer, Nicholas Copernicus, the Italian polymath, Galileo Galilei, and the German astronomer Johannes Kepler, and also Descartes, and others. These thinkers at the time were usually categorized as natural philosophers, and Newton would actually later earn that label as well. But that's only because terms such as scientist and physicist and astrophysicist didn't yet exist to place these men into the types of categories that we would now put them in. So these men were called natural philosophers, generally, and it was through their pens that mathematics, beautiful and exact mathematics, were applied to the cosmos. They wrenched the earth from the center of the universe, positing that the sun was the true center of the solar system. And they said the planets followed patterns as they orbited it. And the orbits were not circular, but in elliptical shapes like a gently squeezed hula hoop. And when a planet is nearer to the sun, it moves faster. And by the way, there are many more stars than had been thought, and the universe is far vaster. And also, as for objects on Earth, heavy things fall at the same rate as light things. And if they're in motion, they like to stay in motion. These were astounding ideas at the time. Not all of them were entirely new ideas, but these 14th and 15th century natural philosophers were refining them, testing them, and conveying them in ways that got attention. And Newton, in his quest to go beyond Plato and Aristotle and toward truth, was enthralled with these hypotheses and theories and findings. It's also noteworthy that it was not at all inevitable that Newton could have come across the work of these natural philosophers. There's an excellent biography on Newton called Never at Rest. It's by Richard Westfall, and it's considered to be the definitive Newton biography. In one part, Westfall writes, quote, "...it was by no means inevitable or even probable, for Cambridge University did not thrust the new world of scientific thought before its students." But it was a place where books were sold and where libraries collected them. So one who chose could encounter learning, which the university itself did not foster. And Newton did choose to spend a great deal of his time with these works and studying material that was not part of the school's curricula. And it's also important to note that these materials were, uh, when you consider the climate that these thinkers were operating in, It's clear that some of these ideas were revolutionary and even dangerous. And that's because the Roman Catholic Church and its Protestant offshoots were the primary authorities in Europe at this time. For more than a thousand years, they had dominated the thinking of Europe, and they had adopted some ideas from Aristotle and Plato, those men that Newton wanted to go past. They had adopted ideas from from those men and other ancient Greek philosophers, including that the earth was the unmoving center, orbited by the sun. And the Catholics and Protestant leaders also misread or misunderstood certain Bible passages so that those passages were kind of in agreement with those Aristotelian and other Greek ideas. And these church leaders didn't like to have anyone question their ideas about how the world and the universe functioned. But that's exactly what was happening with Galileo, and some of these other thinkers. Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong touched on this in his book, Mystery of the Ages. He wrote, quote, as knowledge of astronomy expanded knowledge of the universe around us, thinking minds began to ask questions. What of the whole vast universe? How did it all originate? Rational, scientifically oriented minds found themselves unable to explain the developing knowledge of an expanded universe with the teachings of religion as they knew it through the Roman Catholic Church and Protestantism, which had dominated the thinking of the Western world. So, Catholic Church and, and Protestant Church leaders felt threatened to a degree and sometimes pushed back because they didn't want to lose their position of dominance. But the findings from the natural philosophers kept on coming. And when Newton came onto the scene, he was enthralled with the works of those thinkers, such as Copernicus, Kepler, and Galileo, who had come just before him. He was fascinated with all that those men had discovered about the way bodies behave, both on earth and in space. But he saw that there was no universal principle to connect it all together, to really lock all the planets into their orbits, and to tie the behavior of celestial bodies to the behavior of bodies on Earth. At Trinity, there's a large tree in the center of New Court, which is sometimes said to be the one that Newton was sitting under when the famous apple fell on him. But that's just a myth. In the summer of 1665, a tragedy fell upon much of England including Cambridge University and Trinity. A notice about this tragedy was published at that time by Emmanuel College which like Trinity is also a constituent of Cambridge and the notice said quote It has pleased Almighty God in his just severity to visit this town of Cambridge with the plague of pestilence. This was the Great Plague, the Black Death, or bubonic plague, that struck England with such severity. It killed almost a quarter of London's people, and many more throughout the rest of the country. And it hit as a 23-year-old Isaac Newton was studying. And the disease ended up shutting Trinity and pretty much all of Cambridge down. Within a few months, all the fellows and scholars had left for various locations in the country. And Isaac went back home to Woolsthorpe in Lincolnshire, where he had grown up, and where his mother was still living. So Newton had already departed from Trinity intellectually in his quest to go beyond the established knowledge and to find truth. And now he was also physically departed back in the country. And it was there that Newton had an apple tree in his field of vision. And unlike the oft-told anecdote of George Washington chopping down the cherry tree, unlike the story that before Columbus, everyone thought the earth was flat, also unlike the story saying the pilgrims celebrated the first Thanksgiving in America and invited the Amerindian people to join them, unlike all of those, the account of Newton and the apple is true. Although in the real version, The apple did not fall on his head. One of the best sources for this comes from a manuscript about Newton written by William Stuckley, who personally knew Newton. He wrote, quote, After dinner, we went into the garden and drank tea under the shade of some apple trees, only Newton and myself. Amidst other discourse, he told me he was just in the same situation as when formerly the notion of gravitation came into his mind. Why should that apple always descend perpendicularly to the ground, thought he to himself. Occasioned by the fall of an apple, as he sat in a contemplative mood, he thought, why should it not go sideways or upwards, but constantly to the earth's center? Assuredly, the reason is that the earth draws it. There must be a drawing power in matter. And then the same basic story is told by John Conduit, who was Newton's assistant And the husband of his niece. And Conduit's account actually goes a little deeper by connecting the behavior of the apple to that of the heavenly bodies. He writes, quote, In the year he retired again from Cambridge on account of the plague to his mother in Lincolnshire, and whilst he was musing in a garden, it came into his thought that the same power of gravity which made an apple fall from the tree to the ground was not limited to a certain distance from the earth, but must extend much farther than was originally thought. Why not as high as the moon?" said he to himself. And if so, that must influence her motion, and perhaps retain her in orbit, whereupon he fell a calculating what would be the effect of that supposition. So, Stuckley and John Conduit independently heard the account directly from Newton and others purported having heard it as well. So there's no reason to doubt that the falling apple story is true. For thousands of years before Newton, people had watched objects on earth fall down to the surface, and they had watched the moon in its cycles. But from what we can tell, no one before him ever connected these two phenomena. He understood that the same force was operating on the apple and the moon. Even though one was falling, and the other was floating up in space. He figured out that they both are actually falling. If you're in orbit, you are falling. And Newton drew an incredible diagram called orbits that illustrates all this and that is still often referenced today. And he also came up with what is termed Newton's canon to explain how the moon is falling. Here's a clip from the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson explaining that concept of Newton's cannon.
1: He suggested, suppose you had a hill, and you sort of fire a cannonball. Not very fast, it would just sort of kind of fall, right? Fired a little faster. It goes farther before it hits the ground, doesn't it? Even faster, it'll go even farther. Now wait a minute, Earth is curved. So if you keep this up, this thing is coming around the backside of the Earth. So he asked himself, there must be a speed sufficiently high so that that cannonball comes right back to the cannon. And all you have to do at that point is duck. And the the cannonball ought to just slide on by and stay in orbit. The fact is, the cannonball is falling every moment it's there. The difference is, it's going sideways so fast that the amount that it has fallen is the same amount that the Earth's surface has curved away from it. That is the speed that gets you orbit. And that's why the moon is behaving the same way the apple is. The apple just doesn't happen to have sideways motion to bring it
0: someplace other than right below. So it is beyond extraordinary that Newton figured out the law of gravity and how that same force that makes an apple fall to the ground also keeps the moon falling, so to speak, around the earth. And it keeps the earth and other planets falling in that same way around the sun. This concept is still not an easy one for us to grasp, and that's despite the fact that we have authorities that teach it to us, and books that map it out and illustrate it. With Newton, he was on his own for the overarching concept, which makes his understanding really astounding beyond words. Newton also formulated the laws of motion. One of his most famous equations was F equals M-A. That's a tremendously important equation because when you pair it with the laws of gravity, which actually overlap a great deal, then you can calculate things like how to aim rockets and then land them at desired locations on the moon or on Mars. And it has all kinds of more you know, terrestrial applications as well. Newton's three laws of motion really created the foundation for classical mechanics. And then Newton also discovered the laws of optics. He shined light through a prism and proved that white light is made of the colors of the rainbow. If you've ever shined light through a prism in that way, you will have seen um, it broken into its different bands of color. And Newton named the colors of the rainbow, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Most people really only see six colors in the rainbow but newton was fascinated with the number 7 apparently for what were mostly biblical reasons and because of that he subdivided it a little bit and threw indigo in there and so you have seven colors roy g biv and he came to understand the properties of light as well and its its various bands and he was able to reassemble the bands of colored light back into white light so newton first documented the law of gravity the laws of motion the laws of optics, and then related to gravity and motion, there's also Newton's discovery of some groundbreaking mathematical principles. Before Newton, Galileo had proved that all objects falling to Earth, regardless of their mass, will pick up speed or accelerate in a downward direction at the same rate. And mathematicians could calculate the average speed of falling objects in a fairly straightforward way. They could basically time how long it took to fall, and then measure how far it had fallen, and then just divide the distance by the time. And you get a good average speed that way. But Newton, when he was home at Woolsthorpe, around age 24, he arrived at a point where he was not satisfied to just know the average He wanted to be able to calculate the speed of something that was moving at an accelerating speed at any time in its journey. So if an apple were falling from a tree, what would the velocity be at the halfway point between the branch and the ground? What about at the three-quarters point after it had accelerated even more? Or at any other point? So he realized that if you could calculate the average speed over a very short span of time instead of over the duration of the entire fall, then you could zero in on certain points. And he saw that the shorter the time interval you were measuring, the nearer you could get to knowing the speed at a given moment. But to find its exact speed at a given time, you need to reduce the time interval as near to zero as possible. And Newton conceived of a way to make the time interval infinitesimally short. And so he kept working on it, and soon, for the first time that we know about in human history, it was possible to calculate quantities that are constantly changing, like the speed of an apple at any moment in its fall to the ground, or exactly how a planet's position changes over time. What Newton conceived of here was a wholly new branch of math. It was calculus. So most of us struggle to learn the rudiments, of some of those higher maths in school or university from a professor, from a well-ordered and well-written textbook, but Newton just figured it out, the mathematics of limits and change, essentially. And there was also a German man named Gottfried Leibniz, uh, apparently, who corresponded with Newton and played a role in some of those advances as well. But Newton's notebooks show that he had the main principles of calculus established about eight years before Leibniz. And it revolutionized all of science. What Newton developed with integral and differential calculus was a quantitative comprehension of the way things change. So it had applications far beyond just calculating velocities. It could measure all manner of variables in physics and chemistry, and for that reason, it quickly became the framework in which modern science is formulated. I've got an article here from the publication Math Tutor that illuminates just how momentous this development was. It says, Isaac Newton changed the world when he invented calculus in 1665. We take this for granted today, but what Newton accomplished at the age of 24, is simply astonishing. Calculus has uses in physics, chemistry, biology, economics, pure mathematics, all branches of engineering, and more. And then it goes on to list some of the specific uses in biology and in engineering and in the medical industry. Uh, It also talks about applications in the fields of vehicle development and acoustics and social sciences for studying things like birth rates and population growth, and uh, climate science as well, and for working with light and electricity. And the list goes on and on there. And then the article says, quote, It might be close to 350 years since the idea was invented and developed, but its importance and vitality has not diminished since then. It's not an overstatement to say Newton's insight in the development of calculus has truly revolutionized our ability to pursue new branches of science and engineering. When he invented calculus and outlined its uses, Isaac Newton made one of the most important breakthroughs in history. (music) So his historic breakthrough in calculus came just a very short time after his theory of universal gravitation and his laws of motion. These were all just revolutionary beyond words. And then a short time later, Newton had his 26th birthday. So that was just an indescribable amount of understanding that his work brought into the world when he was just in his mid-20s. An unbelievable number of discoveries that are at the foundation of so many of the advancements of the modern world that we live in today. So Newton has, for all these reasons, come to be thought of as the greatest mind in the modern age of science and reason. As you continue through his notebook about his search for truth it's clear that he became more and more convinced that the whole universe was governed by rational, mechanical laws. And he was convinced that it didn't happen by chance. Under the heading of God, he wrote, Were men and beasts made by fortuitous jumblings of atoms, there would be many parts useless in them. Here a lump of flesh, there a member too much. Some kinds of beasts might have had but one eye, and some more than two. So he was certain that there was a creator. And he knew that all the laws and underpinning unity in nature were the product of a divine mind. And this really helped Newton to keep perspective on his own discoveries. He readily acknowledged that despite his towering intellect, all that he learned of the universe showed him that there is a creator of comprehension far beyond his own. Toward the end of Newton's life, when he was very famous and many in the world of science viewed him almost like a god, he really went out of his way to correct that view. He said, I do not know what I may appear to the world, but to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself in now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, while the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. So Newton clearly understood that all of his work, as brilliant as it was, was nothing compared to the work and understanding of the Creator. And it was because of this attitude of reverence and humility that Mr. Joel Hilliker included some observations about Isaac Newton in his booklet, Our Awesome Universe Potential. Mr. Hilliker writes about the marvels of the universe, that have been seen for the first time in recent years thanks to the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, And by the way, Hubble is based on the basic reflecting telescope design that Newton invented. But Mr. Hilliker discusses how shameful it is that many modern scientists study all the overwhelming majesty that Hubble has given us a window into without even considering the possibility that God created it all. And he writes, quote, It wasn't always so unfashionable for a scientist to accept God as creator. Believers and admirers of God's handiwork have always existed at the heart of scientific development, humbled in the knowledge that all that exists in the physical world emanated from an intelligence far, far superior to theirs, a supreme intelligence that created their own far inferior human intelligence. Isaac Newton was one, end quote. And then Mister Hilliker goes on from there to show how God intends for His physical creation to really teach people about Him, and and about His power and His brilliance. And with Newton, that's exactly what happened. Newton was not called to understand the main parts of the truth of God, but in studying the laws of the universe and the ineffable beauty and order of the creation, he was utterly convinced that there was a Creator. At another time, also toward the end of his long life, Newton wrote, quote, "...gravity explains the motions of the planets, but it cannot explain who set the planets in motion. God governs all things and knows all that is or can be." End quote. Newton seemed to study the Bible really with the same relentless determination that he applied to science. And there's evidence showing that he believed it was all connected, You could understand the creator's mind by studying his creation. And as he got older, he began to study the nature of God more specifically. And he ended up rejecting the idea of the Trinity. At one point, he wrote a lengthy dissertation addressing the corruption of scripture that had happened in 1 John chapter 5, uh, and basically proving that the Roman Catholic Church had added text to that epistle to try to prove a trinity doctrine that is not actually supportable with canonized scripture. Newton never published this dissertation because he knew that speaking out against the trinity would mean he would be viewed as a heretic in England. It was during his lifetime that the blasphemy act had been passed, which made it a crime to deny the divinity of any one of the so-called three persons of the trinity. And Newton knew that he was a heretic, not against God, but against the church. And he knew that he could face serious persecution and consequences for his writings about the Trinity. So those manuscripts were never published until long after he was dead. So he never came to understand the truth about the God family. But because of his determination to go beyond popular teachings in pursuit of real truth, he was at least able to see clearly what God was not. Newton was not an unblemished hero. He was a flawed man with struggles and imbalances and apparently frayed nerves. He lived through a time of serious social and political turmoil in Britain. He lived through the plague, as we mentioned, and also a civil war and regicide and the great fire of London. And he was not unscathed from all of that. But despite it all, he gave much to the world. He devoted his days to probing the unknown and to the pursuit of truth, scientific, natural, and theological. This pursuit was the essence of his life. And it really wasn't until the early 20th century, hundreds of years after Newton, that the development of theoretical and quantum physics began to edge scientists out from Newton's long shadow. At the beginning of the episode today, I mentioned that we wanted to shine the spotlight on Newton, uh, partly out of gratitude for what he did. It's difficult to state how much Newton's work improved the world, because while there are some concrete aspects of it, such as the major improvements he made to telescope technology, much of his work was more abstract. But his contributions to the fields of astronomy, physics, math, and chemistry were vast, and they played a major role in the scientific revolution. And in ushering in this age, when we can walk into our kitchen, swivel a small lever, and out comes as much clean water as we want, hot or cold. That's an unbelievable blessing that most pre-enlightenment societies could have scarcely even dreamed of. And when it's hot or cold outside, most of us can press a few buttons And use gas or electricity to change the climate in our houses to the very degree that we find the most comfortable. And we turn on lights and read or work long after the sun is set. We can talk to friends and family members on the other side of the city or state or country or even the world with phones or the internet. We can use transportation to easily and safely go visit them pretty much anywhere on earth crossing hundreds of miles and even over oceans. In less than a day's time. And it's a time of incredible agricultural efficiency, when entire national populations can be fed by the farming and ranching of only about one percent of people. That way the rest of us can be focused on other pursuits, on education and other kinds of work. It's also notable that in this new age most of us can read. In the late 1400s only about eight percent of the people of the United Kingdom could read. And it was about the same for France and Germany and much of Europe. Literacy was a privilege that only the wealthiest people could afford. But today in all of those countries, literacy is around 99%. And in the world as a whole, it's about 86%. And if it weren't for women in Islamic countries that are forbidden to learn to read and write, that figure for the worldwide percentage would be much higher. And most of us today don't live in crippling fear of major disease outbreaks or that a woman will die in childbirth or that an infant will not survive its first few years. I've got a report here from Our World and Data, and it shows that uh, on average, 26.9% of newborns used to die in their first year of life, and 46.2% died before they reached adulthood. Those are just staggering percentages. And today, a few hundred years into the scientific revolution, the figures for those who die in their first year around the world is 2.9%. And 4.6% die before reaching adulthood. Um, And then if you're looking at just the developed world, the nations that embrace scientific advances, then it's much lower, often fewer than 1%. In the world today, we can also peer out into the heavens in a way that was impossible for almost all of human history. We can see the Creator's work with a clarity that can literally take your breath away. And Isaac Newton certainly isn't single-handedly responsible for all these developments, but his work played a momentous role in them, laying the foundation for thousands and thousands of others to build on. It is true that scientific advancement has failed to fix mankind's spiritual problems, which are really the most foundational problems we have. Mr. Armstrong wrote about that in Mystery of the Ages as well, calling it a great paradox. And many of the advancements of the age of science have also uh, become more like curses, really, than blessings. Exhibit A is the weapons of mass destruction that could wipe out human life. And then there's also the fact that scientists now often act like church leaders from Newton's day, refusing to tolerate anyone who they deem heretical, for not preaching the orthodoxy of their often false teachings. But even still, having gratitude for the developments and opportunities that the world we were born into is full of isn't inappropriate. The Apostle Paul, in his first epistle to Timothy, wrote, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Paul told Timothy to make it a priority to give thanks for all men. And Newton certainly falls into that category. He was a man who was immensely curious and relentless and dead set on finding truth. And he helped to end the era that Mr. Armstrong wrote about when false religion dominated the thinking of the world with ideas that were in many cases wrong. Newton made a dent in the universe. He made a giant leap in human understanding. We're coming to the end of The Sun Also Rises, and if you've not read Mr. Armstrong's book, Mystery of the Ages, we would love to send you a free copy of it. There will be a link for that in the show notes for this episode. We'll also have a link to Mr. Hilliker's book, Our Awesome Universe Potential. So please order your free copy of both of those. If you have any comments or questions about the episode, please email those to tsar at kpcg.fm. And we'll leave you today with some words by Sir Isaac Newton himself, in which his humility really shines through and in which he kind of pays homage to those who came before him. He said, If I've seen further than others, it's by standing upon the shoulders of giants.